namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self-awakened one. Uh, so, uh, we've come to the end of our three-week retreat. Some of you have been here for three weeks. Uh, some joined a couple of weeks back. And one, of you, one or two of you came this week. So, as usual, at the end of a retreat, uh, there's this uh, translation, you might say, of what we've... Uh, come to understand in our practice into ordinary daily life. See? And uh, <clears throat> one of the things the Buddha did was he left, um, I want to start with the monastic order so you have some idea. He said that he had left the Dharma and the Vinaya. He didn't just leave the Dharma, which would be the teaching, the practice of meditation and all that. He also left the Vinaya. The Vinaya is the, the rule of the monks. And he considered that of equal importance, the Dharma and the Vinaya. And uh, he obviously saw that the institution that had developed around him uh, was, of, uh, was of importance as maybe not so much uh, to maintain the teaching. I'm sure that was on his mind, uh, but as exemplars. So uh, as the order grew, especially after the first 20 years when it seems people joined who were not of the same caliber as the first uh, intake. Uh, these rules began to appear, uh, all sorts of rules. So there were, there were serious ones for which you lose the robe, uh, such as uh, stealing. Uh, any, if you excuse, any sexual penetration to the depth of a mustard seed. <laughs> <laughs> Very precise, very precise, in any aperture, by the way. So, he's, so you can see, he's got it. He's got it really taped. You know, there's no, there's no way out of it. And then there's uh, all sorts of rules about, uh, you know, behaviour between monks and especially uh, and, uh, women, and for nuns with uh, men. And there's uh, what you might call institutional rules which define the institution and those rules which are really to do with morality. And they're all mixed together, which is rather interesting. It's actually a very um, um, illogical code. It's, it's really to do with the punishments or, uh, that's not quite the right word in Buddhism, the consequences of what happens if you break these uh, rules. So the rules come in... Uh, in the measure of their of their consequence. So the ones I've just mentioned, you, you lose your robe. There's no ceremony for leaving. You don't have to go and make this great confession in front of thousands of people. You just you just you just disrobe. You just <laughs> disappear. <laughs> uh, that's if you can if you can handle the shame and, and the horror of being a monk, having broken these rules. Of course, you you carry on being a monk, uh, but that would be very hard, I think. But there's others which uh, <clears throat> demand a meeting of uh, 
that you have to tell what you've done to fight. Like, for instance, uh, an obvious one, touching a woman in a lustful way, lustful way, you have to confess to five, then you have to be separated for at least six nights. And then you have to get 20 monks to get you back into the order, to re-establish you, <laughs> or else you're out in the cold. Uh, there's others where you have something which you shouldn't have and you have to give it up. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, uh, I don't know. Um, for instance, uh, sometimes uh, monks will buy something, but it'll be, it'll be like, uh, say, the scriptures. But because they bought it with money, it's, uh, it's, it's not to be had. So often that's, you have to give that up. But often that's given back to the person, you see. It's just like a like a reminder, really, that they shouldn't be doing that. Then there's all sorts of little rules. And, it, and then we get down to, and I'll just show you <clears throat> how nitty-gritty it is. And I don't know. <laughs> and the Buddha said to Ananda, look, these lesser rules, you can, you can get rid of them, you see. Well, of course, Ananda didn't ask what he actually meant by these little rules. So he was heavily blamed at the council. Uh, so nobody's ever had the, the gumption to say, well, look, you know, we can get rid of this rule. <laughs> But it gets down to this, you see, and just note the difference, uh, even though they're all uh, just put in, in any old order, not making a distinction between what is moral and what is institutional. So you get one which is, for instance, I shall not look enviously at another's bowl. Right? So when, <laughs> when you're sitting there at table, uh, have you sort of peeked over and thought, look at that, how could he take so much of that? <laughs> So uh, it's looking, it, the, the envy of looking at somebody's, somebody's food, you see. But then you've got things like what you might call just etiquette. I shall not eat stuffing out the cheeks like a monkey. <laughs> you see? I shall not make a chapu-chapu sound. There's sort of a tune. And I, and I shall not eat making a suru-suru sound. <laughs> so there's all these, all these bands of rules about, about behavior and uh, uh, you know, which all, uh, which all really are to do with a certain etiquette. And I suppose you've got to ask yourself, why? You know, why, why such a, um, why such a finickiness about things? You see. So uh, the only, uh, the only way you can you can um, explain that is the way the Buddha talked about himself. He said, "Who sees the Buddha sees the Dharma, and who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha." So in other words, your behavior is a manifestation of your, of your wisdom. And there's, uh, there's something about somebody who is uh, awakened or liberated, whatever, however you wish to uh, name it, that there's a certain dignity about the person, a certain way of behaving which suggests a refinement. See, so this whole business of ethics, and we'll... And we'll we'll talk about why it's so important, is moving from the gross, you know, like finally we've come to the end of killing people, thieving from the next door neighbour, <laughs> you know, and, we're, and swearing at them. And we've, we've sort of come away from all that. But there's, but there's a whole section of behaviour which is a refinement to do with the beautiful mind. So we're moving towards beautifying the mind, and this naturally expresses itself in the, in the way we behave. Now, to go back a step and wonder why ethics is so important, uh, remember the sequence uh, of, um, of events in, in daily life. 
there is always this underground ignorance, right? Now, remember, that's, that's the wrong word, really. We should say not knowing. In fact, I did find the right word, nescience, but nobody knows it. So I thought, <laughs> there's no point in using it. Uh, every time I say, translate avidya, I've always got to do this, this sort of double take on it and say, well, it's not, it's not culpable ignorance. It's just you don't know. And then there's the mistake they make. What is the mistake we make? The mistake is to think we're human beings. See? Now, once you've, once you've <laughs> realized that that is a conventional reality, right? I mean, we're not apes, right? But in an ultimate reality, we're not human beings. We're not this body, heart, mind. That, that's what I mean when I say human being. So having made the mistake of uh, wanting to be this, uh, believing ourselves to be this human being, what is it that we really, really deep down in our, in the most deepest recesses of our, what do we want? You see? To be happy, isn't it? You just want to be happy. And you can define that in any way you want. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's love. But basically, we're all searching for this happiness, right? Now, our mistake, of course, is to seek happiness in the sensual world. And that leads us into uh, three relationships which are, which are uh, uh, undermining our, our uh, happiness, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like that or feel like that. So the first one is, of course, that you generally feel more happy the more you have. And more is a noun, just more. See, <laughs> so, so more friends, more money, a better job, and it just goes more, more, more. And what we don't realize is that the more you have, the more vulnerable you are. Because the more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have to lose puts you into a state of fear, a state of anxiety. And this anxiety, uh, of course, is underlying all our pleasures in life. See, because we know that it could all disappear in a trice. In fact, uh, the news is now that the world is going to dip again into a, a huge uh, uh, recession, it seems. So a lot of people are going to lose work. There's going to be, there's going to be misery out there. Uh, hopefully it doesn't affect you, of course. So, <laughs> so uh, and uh, on top of that, of course, there's this aversion, there's this defense mechanism where anybody that uh, is undermining your possessions uh, is to be seen as an enemy and uh, must, be, um, must be annihilated at all costs. <laughs> so you can see that these three, uh, these three dispositions relate to uh, show us our relationship to the world. We're either acquiring something or we are defending something or we're running away from something, hiding from something. So from these three dispositions, all our negative, all our unwholesome actions arise. Hmm? You know, the greed, uh, the, the, all the hatred and the spite and the revenge and, the, and, and all the other side too, the, um, the anxiety and the depression. Um, it's difficult to define uh, depression these days. People seem to have various uh, definitions. But uh, when I personally talk about depression, I just mean those feelings that you have when you get in contact with something in your, in your 
in your makeup, which um, is trying to come up, but you don't let it out. So you haven't a clue what it is. It could be suppressed grief. It could be suppressed fear, whatever it is. But as it comes up, as it tries to surface, there's an unwillingness to go there. And there's a fear of it because you just don't know what's, uh, what's, you know, what turbulence there is in the heart. I mean, that's one of our big problems in meditation is to, is to get that, um, to, to be able to, to go into the, to, into the bonfires and, and to feel comfortable there, you know, not to be, not to feel we're going to burn up with them. So, uh, these three dispositions um, lead us then into uh, into these negative actions. And uh, because of that, uh, we have the consequences that come of it. That, that we call, uh, technically it's called vipaka, kama. Vipaka, the kama is the act, vipaka is the, the product. But these days, of course, we it's become, uh, it's become in our language, it's talking about your karma. You know, if anything, anything happens to you, it's your karma. <laughs> Um, just as on an, on an aside there, you know, we need to be clear about what personal karma is, you know. Your personal, by which I mean that karma which is preventing us from achieving liberation, is uh, are these dispositions within us, which every time we act upon them get worse. That's our personal karma. What happens to us from the outside could be caused by a myriad uh, reasons the Buddha is quite clear about that. You know, just because you catch a, a cold doesn't mean that this. You know, be, that's because you uh, you pushed somebody out in the snow many years ago. <laughs> it just means somebody sneezed at you, and you you got the bug. So I mean, it's not it's not that's not your personal karma. How you deal with it and how you um, how you feel about the person who sneezed in your face is your personal karma. Well, that's what your personal karma is. So, okay, so here we have this idea that um, we've started off with this wrong understanding, we've created this mayhem, and now we have to go back on it. And our first attempt through the meditation is to let the heart manifest all its, all its turbulences. And we find that just by allowing it to do that, these, uh, these, these turbulences just, just die away. You know, they begin to they begin to evaporate, you might say. And that, of course, is not a short process. That's going to be, I mean, restlessness doesn't go to the very end. Not until that, that moment when we are fully liberated does restlessness leave us. And it depends, depends how you want to define restlessness. The way I see it is, is that it's, it's all these defilements, but now at such a low level that it's experienced by the person as a sort of, you know, just you know, a discomfort. And of course, conceit, which is at the base of this relationship, the I am, I am me, uh, doesn't go either. So it's not as though we're ever going to be able to uh, to say, well, that's done. You know, I've, I've, I'm finished with <laughs> with worrying about my dark side, you know, because it's always going to be there in some, some little way to the very end. Now, <clears throat> our passage now is... Uh, first of all, to undermine that, but then, of course, it's to develop the good heart. It's to develop ourselves as as beautiful uh, people, and the person. And the reason for that is because this is a manifestation of the Buddha within. This is what we mean by the Dharma, by wisdom, by wisdom in action. We mean how does it manifest in the person, right? And 
it manifests, of course, in all the virtues, and we can we can uh, go through the perfections as they're known. Uh, but it also manifests in this in this sort of refinement of behaviour, you know, refinement of behaviour. Uh, and and that's what uh, that's why there are all these little finicky rules uh, in the in the monastic orders. Now, <clears throat> on another tack, um, we have to question what this what this more is. You see, and here's the here's the Buddha telling us what we actually need and um, in order to live the spiritual life right so don't don't confuse this with what we have to, what we need in order to live the social life you know like you need money for a bus you need etc etc but right at the base of our needs in order to live the spiritual life um, we have these four requisites so I'll, I'll read them out as they um, as they come so wisely reflecting I use the robe so clothes to ward off the cold, ward off the heat, ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, burning and creeping things, eh? and only for the sake of modesty. So there's no, there's no mention here of, of, uh, of uh, um, you know, fashion shows. I mean, you know, like, what is the monk about town wearing at this moment? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't come into the definition. It, it's, it's just straightforward. You're wearing clothes to protect yourself. Unfortunately, we've lost that connection with nature, which allows us to go around naked. You know, like every other animal that we see here, they found ways of bearing with nature. They can live in nature. Uh, when we had that minus 21 up here during that very cold winter, we never had minus 21, there were horses out in the field just standing like, um, like statues, uh, close to each other, not against each other. I thought, well, how, do they, how do they bear? I mean, at night, all day long, and there was hardly any fodder, though the farmer was uh, bringing bales of fodder during the day. But day after day, I'd, I can't remember how long it lasted, but it was a long time, wasn't it? It was at least a month, wasn't it? I remember that terrible winter. And they, were, you know, like, they didn't die. They just, they just, they just stood in the cold. <laughs> Uh, and of course, we we have to. I mean, we have we well, we need hot water bottles. <laughs> so you can see there's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain disconnect being a human being with with nature. But you can see here that's all you actually need. You only need the clothes to protect yourself from uh, nature. However, that might manifest. You know, in the east, it's mosquitoes and stuff. When it comes to arms food, you see, I use the arms food not for fun. That kills it immediately, doesn't it? <laughs> not for pleasure. Uh, this is indulgence. I mean, it's in a sense, that's a wrong translation. Not for, not for fattening. And not for beautification. See, but only for the maintenance and nourishment of the body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life. Thinking thus, and this is what we say um, in a slightly different way, at our meal times, I will allay hunger without overeating so that I may continue to live blamelessly and at ease. So when, when, you, when you're taking food, you see, get down to that, you know, remind yourself of what you actually need, you see. So it doesn't need to be really, really tasty. It doesn't need to be particularly varied. I mean, here, I think we go through every vegetable there is on earth <laughs> by the end of the week. 
<laughs> and every, and so many types of beans and so many types of pulses. And I, I often think, well, I'm not so sure that's particularly good for us because the body has to have to work at thinking, oh, hold on, this is this is cauliflower. So like the body has to has to keep manufacturing different enzymes and different to to compete with the amount of food that's yeah, all these different foods. Whereas in the old days it was just, you know, a veg uh, a chop and two veg. And that was it. And you had that every week and you had uh, you had fish with boiled potatoes, and that was it. I remember that. <laughs> and all these drinks, millions of drinks, were in the old days just tea, wasn't it? You want some tea? You're not bothering. That was the that was the uh, that was the welcome. That was a welcome, wasn't it? <laughs> Do you want a cup of tea? You're not bothering. I say, yeah, right. So uh, it's good to remind ourselves about uh, you know this this refinement about getting back to the basics of, of what we actually need. And then we come to uh, reflecting our lodgings, where we live, you see. So again, the Buddha is only concerned with warding off the cold, ward off heat, ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, winds, burning and creeping things, only to remove the danger from weather and for living in seclusion. I mean, that's, that's the spiritual purpose of your, of your dwelling. Uh, the spiritual purpose of dwelling is to give you a place which is safe from the elements and, and marauding animals and things like that and quiet enough so that sometime in the day you can sit silently uh, and that's it that's that's the spiritual need for your for your uh, house and then the final one is wisely reflecting i use the support for sick and medicinal requisites only to ward off painful feelings that have arisen and from the maximum freedom from disease. And it goes, it doesn't actually say it here, that's the actual verse we say, but the, what we're supposed to be uh, content with is fermented cow's urine. Now think on that. Supposing you went to the doctor with pneumonia and he said, listen, the only thing I can offer you is fermented cow's urine. <laughs> I mean, would you say, what? See? Or would you say, well, uh, should I take it in spoonfuls or should I? That's your basic line in the, in the Ayurvedic medicine, you know, like fermented cow's urine. So <laughs> it's like that also gives us a certain, uh, what should we say, a certain um, a way of being with the NHS. You know, people complain about the NHS, but they don't want to lose it. You know, they're absolutely holding on to it. That's the National Health Service. And they don't want to lose it by any means. You know, like it's, it's their thing. Anybody, any politician who says they're going to uh, do something about the NHS, everybody goes berserk. But everybody complains. It's not good enough. It's not quick enough. It's not this. It's not that. And what they need to do is contemplate fermented cow's urine. <laughs> and then they'll be very happy. They say, oh my goodness, you know, all these machines and medicines is amazing. So uh, that's another way that we can look at our lives when we, when we return, you see. It's just like, what do I need, you see? I remember these are the basic needs for the spiritual life. I remember uh, in the order, the Buddha uh, sort of made it made it so that monks were completely dependent upon lay people. 
I mean, you know, we can't, we're not, we can't touch money. We're not supposed to touch money. So people have to have to support us. Uh, uh, we can't cook. You see, he, he made it very difficult uh, to exit from society. Even though he's always talking about seek seek seclusion, be on your own, get away from the madding crowd. He's always talking about that. But he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let you do this thing about you know getting your own little place out of the country. And, like Sadi Panyan and, and getting on with it by yourself. There always had to be this connection with lay people. So, uh, so obviously, in in uh, in lay life, you need much more than uh, you know just just a, a place where you can sit and so on. Uh, but even so, you can you can take this as as your absolute uh, standard, and then work up from that. You know, just keep asking, well, what do you actually need? What do you actually need? You see. So there are social needs too, you know. I mean, if you're working, you can't turn up in rags. So there's, there's, there's certain uh, behaviours that society would ask of us, which would come under the idea of refinement. You know? So uh, <clears throat> the next thing is to um, recognise this um, loop, uh, this feedback loop that's in the depend, that's in the um, uh, eightfold path. So, in in the mainly in the in the Theravada, well, it's no, it's it's pretty well universal. But we start with wisdom. We start with trying to understand how we create suffering for ourselves. And what this does is, it creates a change in our attitudes. Right, that's why in our meditation we're always looking at the attitude which is driving the thought. The thoughts themselves are only expressions. Right. So um, these. Uh, the wisdom is to realize that there are certain attitudes which are creating problems for us and certain attitudes which are creating happiness. You see? And we'll define happiness uh, at some point. So we, so, uh, uh, we talk about the, the, seeing these three characteristics, you know, the impermanence of things. That undermines attachment when you see the impermanent things. You know, why, why should you be so attached to this Ming vase? You see, you should give it away. <laughs> So if you look at all all your attachments, you can see that this is you know this is actually causing uh, mental disturbance underneath. Yeah? And then there there's the whole problem of dukkha, which is seeing the mechanism, this desiring, this uh, this this way that we relate to things. And again, it's to do with attachment. Attachment, remember, is a psychological dependency on something. For our happiness, which isn't, you know, which isn't under our control, either because it isn't under our control, it disappears, or somebody takes it, or um, it's it, it just is impermanent. That's, that's the end of that. And the anatta is <coughs> recognizing uh, that um, this whole relationship begins with this sense of me, right? And this me is creates a little barrier. Well, sometimes a big barrier. There's me and you. You see. And um, what the by by letting go of the sharpness of that barrier by by perceiving how that barrier manifests, in, uh, then we begin to move towards the opposite. How does it manifest? Well, it manifests first of all in selfishness. That's your first manifest. Every time you know these sneaky little selfishnesses, you know where you take just that the cake which is just a bit bigger than the others. <laughs> Everybody gets a piece. You know, so you know, <laughs> you know, I'm here first. You can see the struggle I go through every time I have to take those. 
So yeah, so after we, so uh, constantly letting go of the bigger piece of cake. Oh, it's a misery. So, <laughs> so, uh, and then there's the uh, the business of uh, of um, uh, acquisitiveness, uh, selfishness. So we've done that selfishness. Then there's the business of of these aversions, you know, petty little aversions, irritations, that we get, you know, uh, little bits of spite and all that sort of stuff. And then there's this uh, cruelty business where we, you know, where we get our own back and poke people in the eye and stuff like that. And as we see that this is actually, when we get into it as a bodily feeling, they're not pleasant at all. Not pleasant at all. And you think, well, you know, God. You know this 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 feeling of selfishness churning me up. This uh, feelings of aversion, a burning. You know, cruelty so so cold within me. Things like that. You begin to feel you feel the discomfort of them, and <clears throat> of course you want to you want to move away from that. And the movement is towards the opposite, of course. So selfishness um, towards generosity, uh, hatred to love, and, and cruelty towards compassion. And uh, that that movement is, um, as we've said during the week, it's not a, it, it's not, it's a, it's a sublimation. I mean, I rather like that word. It, you know, I get it from uh, chemistry, where uh, some substances go from solid to liquid to air to a gas, but some just go from solid to gas. And, and the word for that, I believe, is sublimate. So when we let go of a bit of hatred, it immediately sublimates into its opposite love. It's not as though there's an in-between bit where there's a sort of a hate-love thing. <laughs> it, it, it just pops into the, other, into the other category, you see. And it's there as potential, and it manifests in our actions. And uh, if you take any, any, uh, any attitude which is unwholesome, it will move towards its opposite. So the one I, the one I normally would, would centre on is is loneliness. Loneliness is a big thing in our society. You know, uh, the lack of extended families, elderly people, uh, towards the position to which I'm moving myself, just stuck on their own, <laughs> are getting lonely. So loneliness, of course, is, is, can lead to despair. It's a, it's a feeling of being unloved, unwanted, not feeling worthy. It's all that, all that sort of rubbish that comes up inside us when, when we start feeling this loneliness. And, uh, and of course, there's a, there's a need for most people to have communication, you know, just a bit, just to talk to yourself in a mirror won't do, you know. And when you actually sit in the midst of that awful feeling and you're just staying with it and staying with it, you see, it begins to uh, lessen away and it's, and it, and it's beginning to, um, to sublimate. So what, what does it move towards? Solitude. Solitude is the is being at peace with ourselves, being you know just to be able to be completely happy on one's on one's own. Okay? So if you take any of these negative um, states uh, and just work out what its opposite are, you can purposefully move towards the opposite through certain exercises, and mo mainly the exercise is to stay with the unpleasant. And wait for it to die away. You might not see the opposite immediately, but at least just to wait for it to fade or to begin to fade. Right? 
And then, and then one begins to see that there is an ending to this suffering. There's an ending to these mental states. And that all comes through our practice, through our practice of meditation. Now, <clears throat> this is where it then begins to translate itself into what we do. So, the right speech, right? Uh, it's not just, you know, stop telling, you know, uh, great big whoppers and things like that. <laughs> it's, it's also to do with uh, a refinement of speech, uh, not wasting speech, not, 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 not just talking for talking's sake, you know? A refinement of speech, not using coarse language. Um, a sort of uh, taking a certain, um, a certain, uh, seeing the worthiness of really knowing what you're saying, of making it, of making it very deliberate. You know, not ju- you know, not just rabbiting on about something. And then you get uh, right action. So this is normally defined as. You know, just moving away from all those five um, uh, five training rules that we have, not to kill, not to steal, etc. But remember, as soon as you move away from those, you're moving towards the opposite. So where now we've, we've abandoned killing, uh, we're now moving towards caring, caring for beings. Yeah? Where we once uh, might have not been so uh, uh, clever with our language, um, like exaggeration, you see. Exaggeration is a sort of soft lie, you might. And I've been much more truthful, much more direct, much more simple. Where we once used coarse language, we now try to phrase our language with a little bit of beauty, you know, like reading poetry, things like that. And where there was useless speech, you know, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't waste time on that. But don't get confused between useless speech and the ordinary pleasantries of daily life. Uh, in the monastic life, <clears throat> where I was anyway, my monastery, which was a meditation monastery. Nobody ever said good morning. I mean, you, you turned up with your bowl and, and you were silent. Uh, and then when you came out, nobody said, was that all right? Did you, you know? that, was, that was it. You just, it was in silence most of the time. So when I went to live with my mother, uh, after my father died, I stayed with her for a while. Uh, one morning I came into the kitchen, you see, and began to say, when she turned around and said, well, good morning then. <laughs> and I thought, right, okay. So from then on it was, how you doing, mum? You know, come on, give it a hug. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> and you forget these little pleasantries, which which aren't useless speech. They're just ordinary, so we say, simple human communication. Sometimes you can make the mistake. Uh, I I only made it once, uh, where you think, well, you know, I've got to be sincere when I speak. I must be sincere. So, in the pleasantry of meeting people, say, and this happened to me when I was working at. Uh, a college and I, a, a colleague was coming towards me and I was being sincere so I said to him how are you and I said it in such a way that that allowed him to spend 10 minutes telling me how he was <laughs> <laughs> I, I was late for the class and I thought mm, no just how are you will do you know how are you doing you know I'm all right <laughs> so it's like it's like you've got to temper what uh, your ideas well you know live and learn and, um, and then there's right livelihood. And I think the key to right livelihood is the word service. When we see our work as service, then, of course, everything seems to work for us. So from a point of view of service, service demands a certain humility, by which I mean 
uh, a reality about ourselves. So when, when I offer my services to the company or, or to the workplace or to somebody in therapy or whatever I'm doing, when, when I'm offering my services, right, um, I'm open to the fact that they might not meet with the situation. You know, they might not be good enough. They might not be the right ones, you see. But that, if, if it's come with the heart of service, that's not a problem. Um, I remember once going for an interview. Uh, I didn't get the job. And I was in the waiting room. And um, I was in the, the sitting room like, waiting to go in for the interview. And um, at the end of the interview, I, I came out. Um, and I knew I'd botched it. I'd say something terrible. And I, <laughs> and I came out. And I sat there. And the guy, and this man next to me said, I wonder, I wonder what they're looking for. See, we would say, I wonder who. He was very wise. It's not who they're looking for. It's what you can offer at, at a firm or your employer's looking for. And when you, when you think, well, what are my skills? What are my uh, aptitudes? That's what you're offering. But if you put yourself in there, then there's always going to be a real downer. You know, like they don't want me. But it's not a matter of wanting you. They just want your skills. You see what I mean? And this also takes us into this whole area of ambition. So a lot of people, when they come into this sort of teaching, they think, oh, that's, that's ego-driven. It's, you know, I shouldn't be seeking power. I shouldn't be seeking that. But not if you're at service, because if, you're, if you see your talents as being to the service of humankind, you have a duty to offer it. So if you, you see yourself uh, as being able to do that job, you know, um, whatever, the prime minister or whatever, you should do it because that's your duty to offer that service. And that takes that, that allows you to, uh, to grow because the Buddha talks about um, right livelihood as a, as, a, as a place where you grow. So if you think about the effect of the work you've done in your lives on your personality, on your character, you know, I mean, you can always tell somebody who's been a policeman because they're always suspicious. <laughs> and a teacher always asks questions they can answer. I mean, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like it does affect you, you see. Uh, somebody who's in the caring professions, they affect, they, they affect the way they, they relate to people, you see. We shouldn't think so darkly about uh, the armed forces um, as Buddhist, uh, in, in, in the Buddhist, um, in, as a Buddhist or from a Buddhist point of view. Um, uh, I know of one place who would not allow the Buddhist center who would not allow soldiers or anybody to do with the armed forces to enter into the property. And I thought, well, you know, this is there's all a wrong understanding, really. Now, you might say, well, these people are trained to kill, right? And they are, of course, that's what <laughs> so, their job is, is to kill, but it's, it's, it's to kill in the line of duty, is to kill in, in terms of protection. Now, even monks can defend themselves, we're allowed to defend ourselves. And that's, of course, how the whole thing about um, uh, Kung Fu came about. The emperors of India, would, uh, the emperors of China would either be Buddhist or they'd be anti-Buddhist, or they'd become Confucius. Again. And so the, uh, the Buddhist monks in the Buddhist community would find themselves being persecuted, and the monks would have to flee and go, on, go into the hills, etc., etc. So they had to find a way of defending themselves, whereby... They were, their purpose wasn't to hurt the, the opponent, but to just to defend themselves. 
And so this whole form of fighting was developed to, uh, uh, as a way of defending themselves, not as a way of attacking, see? And of course, you know, as you, def as you use the energy of the other to, um, to destroy the other's attack, as you know, as they pass by, you give them a quick rabbit chop and that's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there were, uh, should we say, there were certain realisms about about uh, violence, and I think it clarifies it if you make a distinction between force and violence. Force is the necessary energy you need to put right what is wrong. Violence is the same thing with anger, with hatred, with revenge, with spite. So, for instance. If you, if, you, uh, if you put a cup of uh, uh, coffee down on a table or tea and it falls off, then you've got a choice. You can either say, oh dear, and, and wipe it up and put it back, or you can start kicking yourself and getting upset with yourself <laughs> and banging the cup back on the table. And that's the, that's the sort of differentiation which allows um, you know, people to have uh, countries to go in with armed intervention, you know, just to save the situation. We've got lots of history, recent history, Rwanda for a start, where there was a failure to, to stop people murdering themselves, murdering each other. So there's a whole area there around livelihood. Whatever we're doing is to recognize what, uh, what qualities is my job uh, doing? What, what, what's it developing within me? What are the qualities it's developing in me? And then to see what qualities it's not developing. Got, no job can develop all qualities and to make sure that somehow you either balance it or find some ways of developing those qualities. Or indeed, there are certain qualities in a job which are overdeveloped, like I mentioned, the suspicions of a, uh, my, my, my brother-in-law is a policeman, so, so I know he's very suspicious. So, <laughs> so it's a case of recognising that and uh, using it for our benefit. So uh, here we have this a uh, sense of <clears throat> uh, refinement of our behavior, uh, undermining our unwholesome qualities and uh, moving towards wholesome qualities, the beautiful mind, the beautiful heart, and using our daily situations in order to do it. And that's, that's, that's daily practice. And <clears throat> one or two things that we've been doing here relate directly to what we're doing in the, in the world out there. For instance, when we're working, it's care and attention. It's making sure that we just stop for a moment to get the attitude right and we enter into the work with that attitude. But we've got to keep mindful because these, uh, these uh, defilements can slip in, uh, you know, uh, unwittingly. So we start off being, being calm and, and with right attitude. And before we know it, we're getting irritated. See? In this case of stopping then and recognizing that and putting our attention on, on what we're doing. Uh, when it comes to all the things that we enjoy in life, you see, uh, relationships, art, uh, food, doesn't matter what it is, uh, but at the end of it to express our gratitude. Gratitude. And then once we've said thank you, you know, goodbye, that's it, it's gone, finished. It's never to be repeated. See? And that's the letting go of it. Uh, when we um, when we are with people to remember our that we're actually opening up to what to the, to them uh, we talked before about this uh, sense of I being a barrier 
be between me and you. And what we need to do is to turn it into a sort of boundary and a boundary which is uh, malleable. It moves. It's not, it's not stiff. It's not rock. Uh, there's a lovely image I picked up from, I think it was Ken Wilber, actually, if I remember rightly, where he talks about the beach. So the beach sometimes is the sea and sometimes it's the land. And it's just just being in that sort of relationship where you're coming from your position, but you're also seeing where the others are coming from. And that gets rid of this idea of my view, my opinion, and it moves us towards an idea of perspective. And when you have your perspective, you you can still maintain your perspective, but it includes them. And so you don't get these violent opposites. And you get a sense of ability to compromise because you're not creating these harsh sorts of definitions. So there's uh, there's lots of stuff around uh, which you can read on daily life. I mean, there's there's books aplenty, you know. <laughs> Catastrophe Living by <laughs> Kabat-Zinn. There's a lovely one by Jodo Beck, who's a, who's a Zen teacher. Uh, there's lots of them. And it's worth uh, it's worth sort of, you know, picking them up and, and reading the occasional uh, chapters and whatnot. Because they, you know, they, these things, they do guide us in our practice. But the important thing that uh, we have to grasp is that uh, the meditation is only really just part of the path, you know. It really is a, an important part. It's the springboard. It's, it's uh, I, would say it's ne- I would say it's necessary. Uh, but if I were talking uh, a bit more, a bit more, uh, should we say subtly, I would say meditation isn't necessary. What's necessary is mindfulness. And that, that mindfulness, that, that being aware of what we're doing, uh, is something we, you know, we should try to maintain all the time. It's very difficult, huh? very difficult. But meditation is a, is, a, is a wonderful practice to sort of ground us and to get us to begin to work with all this subterranean stuff, you know, and to get us to see these qualities of Anicca, Dukkha and Atta. And they, all this feeds, it all feeds in, you see. And uh, not to be concerned about progress. A lot, a lot of people, you know, we, well, we, we, I think we all get upset that, you know, I've been doing this for years and nothing's happened. <laughs> I think there's always a general feeling about that, you know. And it's, uh, it's often, it's always to do with some sort of expectation uh, about the rate of progress. And... Um, and expecting, expecting it to be much quicker than it is. And why is it so slow? Well, it's because um, we're lazy. Sun Lun, the great uh, Arahat uh, in Burma, he, uh, he had this very fierce meditation practice of breathing like an engine. And you would breathe and breathe and breathe. <gasps> like that, you see, until, until you were exploding with pain. And then, and then the breath would stop. And it was as though the breath had pushed out all these defilements. And that's the, I think that's the way he, I don't think he explains it like that, but that's the way I can only understand it working. <laughs> and he became fully liberated in six weeks. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> that was from his first um, breakthrough. He was a, just an ordinary farmer, uneducated really. And he, uh, somebody had told him how to do uh, breathing meditation. They must have told him this fast breathing, which sounded more Hinduistic than Buddhist. But no, they they tested him. The big uh, the big monastic sangha bosses tested him, and, and they all and he himself declared himself 
didn't suffer. I mean, nobody ever says that an arahant, you know, I mean, you're in for you're in for people throwing stones and tomatoes at you if you say that. But he said he didn't suffer, you see. And he was asked, he said, you know, like, you've made it so quickly, why is it that we can't? He said, you're lazy. <laughs> you're lazy. Yeah. You come here, you work hard or so much, you know, then you give up. Then you go back and, uh, you know, back to the old life, get off, not the TV, get into it. <laughs> so it's up and down, up and down. But hopefully, you know, we do see uh, improvements. And... I think uh, rather than uh, seeing our improvement in terms of, you know, insights uh, and stages, you know, full of stages, it's much better to, to think about how we're relating to people and how we're relating to the world and just finding a greater sense of contentment about our lives, you know, wanting what we get, not always getting what we want. You know, it's like turning things round and just, and just get that sense of feeling of, of contentment with what we are. So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you, by your fierce determination and continual practice, achieve liberation from suffering sooner rather than later. It's always very weak, you know. That's <laughs> I never get the real punchy stuff. <laughs> there was, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but um, oh, what am I doing? Heavens. Hold on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.